0: Welcome to Success Story, I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network, which has other amazing podcasts like Business Made Simple, hosted by Donald Miller. Business Made Simple takes the mystery out of growing your business, so make sure you tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Today, my guest is Ronald Diamond, longtime investor and entrepreneur. Ron Diamond is the founder and chairman of Diamond Wealth. He represents over 100 family offices ranging in size, from $250 million to $30 billion. Diamond Wealth invests in private markets, including private equity, venture capital, and real estate. In addition, Diamond Wealth has divisions that focus on philanthropy, wealth transfer, investment banking, social impact, and governance. Earlier in his career, he founded Pinnacle Capital, a $250 million hedge fund that outperformed the S&P Index 10 out of 10 years before ultimately selling his company to an international investment firm. Previously, Diamond served as Senior Managing Director at Bear Stearns, and he began his career as an analyst at Drexel Burnham Lambert. He serves on the advisory board of 10 privately held companies and acts as chairman for four of them. He is also chair of two Tiger 21 chapters in Chicago and chairs a newly created family office group for Tiger 21. He is the past chairman of the advisory board for the disruptive Technology, and Digital Cities program at Stanford University, and taught classes in the Entrepreneurship program at Stanford.
1: I was 24 years old. I was sitting in a room with a group of extraordinarily successful people at Drexel Burnham. Drexel Burnham at the time was the most profitable firm on Wall Street. Fred Joseph, the CEO, came into the meeting. I was a trainee at the time, and he announced that Drexel Burnham was going bankrupt. So I'm literally in the room with the 10 kids from my training program. We're all 24 years old. It it didn't impact us much because we don't have stock options, and we lost a good job. But I'm literally watching people in their 60s and 70s, and many of them were openly weeping. And, and on Wall Street, certainly in the 70s, in the 80s and 90s, that typically didn't happen. Many of the people lost most or all of their money at Drexel. It was a surreal moment, but my takeaway from that was, I would always be loyal to people, but not to a company. Because if this can happen to Drexel, this could happen to anybody. So as a result of that, I, my plan initially was to stay at Drexel for 50 years and hopefully run one of the divisions. Um, that fell apart two years later. So my basically I moved back to Chicago, um my father was six so I, mo- I did move back to chicago and i ended up starting a hedge fund but that was not what the initial plan was
0: and and walk me through starting a hedge fund because anybody that's listening that's a very daunting task so you just yeah
1: it sounds more daunting than it really is you basically you um it, as long as you have a group of investors that have confidence in you to give us you know small dollar amount of money you don't have to open a, a hedge fund with a huge dollar amount and we didn't um i had several people that i've known most of my life and i've done fairly well in school and they had confidence in me to give me a small dollar amount of money to see how i would do and if i did well they'd maybe give me more that's kind of how we got started um it ultimately grew and we we had very good performance but to get, to get to get started we just i called an attorney we structured the we structured the the documents i found some investors we had enough money to get started and then we got started um I didn't know what I was doing. I I mean, literally you you just, you just do it as is. Um, in retrospect, I kind of laugh at kind of how that whole period of my life, but I didn't know enough to know that you you shouldn't start a hedge fund right away, but I did. And it it worked out fine.
0: I feel like, um, I feel like that's a, a good entrepreneurial lesson. I think sometimes the people that are successful are the people that don't know any better and they just do it. Um, how to, as as somebody who built a fund, uh, curious about um, how you decided investment thesis, how you decided uh, like what strategy you would take. Like It was obviously learning as you go, but if anybody who's listening to this, which is probably a more complex topic, a lot of the people that listen to this podcast are more entrepreneurs, but this is a business at the end of the day. Um, if anybody ever wanted to emulate you, what are some tips, advice for somebody else starting a fund?
1: Well, don't emulate me as a person, but as far as the fund is concerned... Um, <laughs> we were pretty good stock pickers. Um, you know, our, our, you know, we had some proprietary models. Um, we never had huge returns. We never had 40, 50, 60% returns like a lot of the hedge funds. And remember also when when I had the hedge fund, um, this was very early in the hedge fund era. I mean, back then it was in the nineties from 1990 to 2000. So people used to think you can make money in an, an up market or a down market. That's the term hedge fund. Um, that wasn't the case. You're either good at one or good at the other. And we were pretty good at picking stocks. We also had a lot of luck because in the nineties, you had a bull market. And so it wasn't that challenging. If I did my exact same strategy from 2005 through 2010, I would have gotten clobbered. So we were pretty good at what we did, but we, there's an element of luck and timing, which is critical. And I think that's true with, with any entrepreneur and certainly true with me.
0: And, and, uh, when you when you when you build this out, what's the what's the exit plan? So following your career a little bit longer, um, you built this out to to what level? What assets under management? How long did you do this for? And then what did you do after? So we ran
1: it. First of all, I didn't have an exit. It's not like a company where I had an exit plan or an exit strategy where I was going to hold it for five years and then sell it. Um, we built. I started in 1990 and I sold it in 2000. So I ran it for about 10 years. We ran about 250 million dollars, and again, we never had huge returns. What we did have, though, was consistency, and we beat the S and P 10 out of 10 years. So our clients were happy because if they're up, market's up seven, we're up eight and a half, they're they're fine. In the 90s, they didn't call them family offices; they called them rich people, and now they call them family offices. So that's kind of how I got into the business of family offices. So I had all these rich people who are now called family offices. And we basically invested. We picked stocks that we thought were would, would go up. Um, we were pretty good at it. We had big tailwind behind us. And in 2000, I felt the market was overvalued. Um, I sold the company to a market neutral fund. I brought 100% of the assets over, stayed on for six months. And then I just took a year off, um, started doing some traveling, um, got into yoga, meditation, and then... Um, after about eight months, I could, I just couldn't do it anymore. So I, I needed to get back to work.
0: And then OK, so then when obviously that's a, a, an interesting exit, you have a liquidity event um, now, what's what's next for, for you when you want to build something from scratch again? You could have started another fund. Obviously, you, you've done that once before, um, but now you operate in a, in a slightly different way. So explain your thought process as to after a liquidity event from selling a fund. Um, where do you position your time? You could build a company. You could build another fund. What do you do now? Well,
1: it was, my plan was to start a private equity firm. And while I was planning that I wanted to invest, so I like to invest in private markets, which is private equity, venture capital, real estate, credit, things like that. And so basically what I did was I would just make small investments in those different asset classes. And I also like to do the direct deals rather than invest in the funds. So I would do that. And then my thought process was, I wanted to be, um, typically, if there's a very attractive deal, private equity, venture capital, real estate deal, typically, whoever owns that deal, they're going to usually call their number one or their wealthiest clients first, and then kind of go down the list. I didn't have enough capital to be the first call. But cumulatively, I did. So basically, what I did is I went to the Family offices that were with, with me before when they were just rich people, and now they're family offices. And I said, I'll put a small dollar amount in. I might put one or two million dollars into a direct deal. You could put 40, 50, 60 million dollars cumulatively. We work with about 100 family offices, and these are families ranging anywhere between 250 million up to 30 billion dollars. So they put the big chunk of the money in there. And as a result of that, I now have enough money to be the first call. So I call it first call alpha. We don't charge anything, but I'm not doing it for self-list purposes. I do it Mm selfishly because without their money, I wouldn't be the first call and get the great deals. And it also does benefit them because I am doing some diligence and there's some value add that I'm doing acting as the funnel. So that's kind of what we do right now.
0: And actually, now that I now I think about this structure, can you actually help me understand like why you didn't just start that private equity firm? Because then all these rich people, family offices, they could have been LPs. True. Um, I can't give you a, a, a
1: real reason for it. It just I started investing and yeah. then my thought process was as I started investing and before I'm starting the private equity firm, I realized that what I've done by doing what I call first call alpha, I love doing it. So I was pretty good at it and I love doing it. So if you're pretty good at something and you love doing it, that's really what you should do. So that's kind of oh, how nice. it happened. So it wasn't like a grand scheme that I had a great idea. It just, it was serendipitous.
0: And okay. So then what does, what does the business look like now? So just describe like who you work with, um, what, what the actual, is cause it's now it's matured a little bit.
1: Right. So, um, I'm hesitant to call it a business. So basically what we do, we invest, I invest my own capital, which is a, a finite amount of capital. And we work with about 100 family offices. These are families anywhere between 250 million to $30 billion. And we look for the private market, private deals, private, private equity, venture capital, real estate credit. I kind of act as a funnel. So if I see a private equity deal, I know 17 families that love that type of private equity. If it's a cannabis deal, there might be six people. If it's a multifamily real estate deal, there might be 70 people. So I kind of know who likes what. When I see a deal, I I will look at it, diligence it, invest it myself, And then I'll go to my network. And if they want to invest in it, terrific. And if they don't, that's fine. But I know what everybody likes. So I'm not going to go, if somebody doesn't invest in early stage venture, I'm not going to show them an early stage venture deal. If somebody doesn't invest in multifamily realty, I'm not going to show them that. So I kind of know who likes what, and I show them the deal. And as a result of that, we'll structure an SPV, which is um, a special purpose vehicle, and come in and just invest. And we typically can get better economics because if you come in investing, fifty million dollars, you can more become part of the general partner and you could dictate terms a lot better than I could if I can only put in one or two million Mm dollars. So that's really why we're doing it.
0: Why I'm doing it. And and so now you've worked with all these rich people turned family offices and I know that's like the majority of the, the focus of your work. So walk me through, I guess, even the history of the family office because I think people understand venture capital. They're everywhere. And people understand um even what like private equity means they've heard the term hedge fund before but family office is like it's everywhere but nobody quite understands what it means
1: including people in the industry so um in the u.s it probably started at rockefeller maybe 1875 in europe it started way before then um you could go back to akbar the great i mean so i mean go back hundreds and hundreds of years but basically um when you hear the word family office most of the family office, 68% of family offices that are in existence today started since 2000. And half of those started since the crash of 2008. So let's kind of bucket this is um, the family offices, really as people know it today, most of which started after 2000, so this is a relatively new phenomenon. The interesting thing about the industry and the fascinating thing about the industry is I believe that as private equity and venture capital disrupted the public markets in the early 90s because it was a superior model. If you have a company and you've got to report to a guy like me or other analysts every 90 days, it's hard to run a company long-term. So the reason private equity and venture capital exploded was because it was a better model. And it was a better model because 2% I'm only paying for the overhead and 20% I only make money if you make money. So that model made more sense in general than the public markets where you had to report every 90 days. The market exploded. What happened is, and again, I'm generalizing because I put money, I do have money in private equity funds and venture capital funds. But in general, they bastardized the business and it became an AUM game. And what should be a $500 million fund became a $5 billion fund. And I'll give you like a specific example, which I think is a microcosm of what's happened to the industry, and why family offices are starting to disrupt private equity and venture capital. A friend of mine rolled up a logistics did a roll up of logistics companies, and he went to a placement agent in New York, and he needed about 150 million. Placement agent, based on his track record, was actually able to get him close to 500 million. My friend said, "Terrific, I just need 150, and let's get started." The placement agent literally came to his house in New York and wrote down on paper, 2% of 500 million equals X, 2% of 150 million equals Y. What am I missing? And my friend was a bit incredulous. He goes, here's what you're missing. I won't have another fund if I do what you want me to do because I can't deploy 500 million. I can deploy 150 million perfect, very efficiently, but the other $350 million, I can't deploy that well. Now, I'm smart enough to know that 2% to $500 million, I'll make more money today, but it's not going to help the performance of the fund. So again, I'm generalizing, but this is a microcosm. So these, these private equity firms and venture capital firms have become massive, and it's become an AUM game, and it's become an inherent conflict of interest in many instances. Family offices, the biggest advantage they have is something called patient capital. Patient capital is they don't have to sell. So if you look at it from a macro standpoint, the private equity and the venture capital firms, which I believe in general are a better model than the public, public companies, they're compensated to turn companies over every three to five years, irrespective of how the company, where the company is at. That's how they're compensated. That's not necessarily the best way to create long-term wealth. So if you look at... What happens in a lot of the markets, it's typically private equity firm A sells to private equity firm B, and they do well and sell to private equity firm C, until somebody doesn't do well, right? So there's so much money out there. Family offices, so if you look at a a company that's been bought and sold three times over a 20-year period, and then you look at a family office who bought it once, held it for those 20 years, didn't have to pay the taxes, didn't have to pay the transaction costs, didn't have to figure out ways to redeploy the money, it's a much better deal, right? So patient capital is by far the biggest advantage that family offices have over private equity and venture capital. Now, having said that, they're not going to replace private equity and venture capital because private equity and venture capital are huge industries and they're going to continue to grow. All I am saying is that they're going to start to disrupt them because there is a better alignment of interest. So let's say you're an entrepreneur and you've got a great idea to, for a widget company.
0: I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. one data source for everyone. through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash That's netsuite.com slash Clary. to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed.
1: What used to happen is you go to Sequoia or NEA or one of these big venture capital firms and... You're like, terrific. I'm funded by this huge venture capital firm and you're set. Here's the problem. If you're that entrepreneur, you're one of 20 portfolio companies, right, within the within the fund. Let's assume it takes three years or so to make traction, and then you think your company's about to hockey stick up. You're one twentieth of the fund. They might decide, even though they might believe you're about to hockey stick up, that they want they want to bring in somebody else so they could sell you, even though it might not be in your best interest. So you don't really control that, right? The, the, the venture capital firm does. And remember, they're trying to turn money over every three to five years. It's a better model for the entrepreneurs to partner with a family office. The problem is that the family office market in general, the world that I'm in, is very fragmented, very inefficient, and very siloed in general. That's starting to change, and you're starting to see family offices become more institutionalized. So the statistics are 25% of family offices make it to the second generation, 10% make it to the third, and 5% make it to the fourth. So the model doesn't work. And why is that? Well, part of the reason, a large part of the reason is because if you look at who, has these family offices. It's the guy who sold Beanie Babies. It's the guy who started Five Hour Energy or Guest Jeans or Giorgio Perfume or a chain of gas stations. They have a liquidity event for a billion dollars. It's a totally different skill set to sell Beanie Babies or Guest Jeans, which I couldn't do, than to take a billion, grow it to two, not spoil the kids, do some estate planning wealth transfer, and grow the asset base. So you've got huge amounts of capital in, in general, very inefficient hands. The market today in family offices, $10 trillion in capital in family offices. There's currently $4.5 trillion in capital in the hedge fund space worldwide combined. That's wild. In the next 15 years, you've got $65 trillion that's going to transfer from the baby boomers to the next gen. This will be the largest transfer of wealth in history. As a result of that, family offices in the next 10 years will be larger than private equity and venture capital combined. So the market is massive. The problem is that it's a new industry, it's inefficient, it's fragmented and siloed. So what's starting to happen, and I think we're in the third inning, maybe the top of the fourth, but we're still early in this, that family offices are starting to become more sophisticated. So you look at what the Pritzkers did. So Paul Carbone is a friend, who runs the Pritzker family
0: office. They've institutionalized it. You look at what Michael Dell's family office Can you has explain done. what you that know, means? Bloomberg. When, how does that, what does it mean when you say they institutionalize? What is, what? So in other words, basically you've got a
1: family office now that has a huge pool of money, but they, they run it more like an institution. So the, 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 when you hear the term family office, everyone thinks of something different. A lot of people might think of Michael Dahl or Michael Bloomberg, so these, these billionaires or Ross Perot who made a lot of money. Most family offices today are not like that. Most of them are much smaller and most of them are not really run efficiently. And they, um, because the founder made a tremendous amount of money, he or she made a lot of money in whatever business they were in, it doesn't necessarily translate to, I can now take invest and, and, and do, do that well. So you've got a lot of people um, right now with a tremendous amount of money that are, at least in my opinion, in over their heads. Um, in order for it to make economic sense to start a family office, and again, I'm not right. This is just my opinion. You need a bare bones minimum of $250 million in order for it to make economic sense if you're going to invest in the private markets, private equity, venture capital, credit, real estate. Some people would argue $500 million. Um, there's a ton of family offices that are a lot less. Those family offices, those families that are much less than that, they're much better off going to what's called a multifamily office. So I want to touch on what a multifamily office is and how that's grown. You started um, 50, 60, 70 years ago, you had the wire houses. Now, the problem with the wire houses in general um, is they're technically not even fiduciaries, which is mind-boggling if you think about it. As a result of that, Over the last 10 to 15 years, something called RIAs, which are registered investment advisors, came to fruition. They're fiduciaries, which means they have to do what's in the client's best interest, right? So the growth in RIAs has exploded over the past 10 to 15 years. On top of that, you have the multifamily offices. All that is, it's an RIA that looks at things holistically. So they're not just trying to create alpha. They're also looking at estate planning, wealth transfer, philanthropy, next gen, succession. That's all that is. So you've got the wirehouses, is model one. The next iteration is the mult is the RAAs, which was a better model because they're fiduciaries. And then on top of that, which is the best model, is the multifamily offices. There's a lot of family at people who are running single family offices that, in my opinion, would be better off in multifamily offices without the amount proper amount of capital, and without the amount of talent to to do that, you're better off with the multifamily office. Now, having said that, let's assume you're the Pritzkers, or the Crowns, or the Dells, or the Bloombergs of the world. Yeah, you can institutionalize it. So they pay these people, and you have to remember, you have to pay for talent. So one of the problems with family offices, and again, I'm generalizing, but if a family office pays somebody $500,000, in general, many of them look at that as a cost. In other words, that cost me $500,000. If a private equity or venture capital, with Apollo or Carlisle comes in and pays somebody $500,000, they look at that person as a potential 10-20 $20 million profit center. So it's nuanced. It's not a cost. It's a profit center. But until the family offices get to the point where they start looking at it as a potential profit center and not as a cost, like some of the family offices are, They're not going to be able to get there. That's slowly starting to change. So what's fascinating about the industry right now is as private equity and venture capital, as I said, disrupted the public markets in the early 80s and 90s, um, you're starting to see family offices compete and disrupt private equity and venture capital based on the fact that they've got patient capital and they've got money that can just compound and that's what
0: they're looking to do. And this is how the family office environment is now evolving, and this is what you're actively seeing now. So we're living through this renaissance of. This is happening real time, and
1: again, I will tell you that um, a lot of the family offices, uh, post crash, pre COVID, the thing with family offices is they wanted to do direct investments, and they wanted to do direct investments because they didn't want to pay two twenty, they didn't want to pay the fees. The problem, the good thing, and the bad news. The problem is, everything from post-crash, pre-COVID, everything went up. So if you're investing in private equity, venture capital, real estate, Bitcoin, the stock market, you probably made money. So these people who did these investments, and then they didn't pay fees, it's not that hard. As we head into a recession, and I think we are starting to head into a recession, people will realize there's a skill set to what these private equity and venture capital real estate guys do, and I think a lot of people are in over their skis. So I think how this is going to play out, a lot of these people who did the direct deals previously are going to come back to more of the experts, won't mind paying the fees because they realize that they're worth it. And um, the, the family offices that have built out institutions like the Pritzkers, like the Dells, like the Crown family, they can compete directly. But you're going to see a backlash and more of the family offices, at least in my opinion, um, are going to use consultants or use outside people rather than doing everything internally unless they've got the right infrastructure. So it's a f- This is all happening real time right now.
0: Well, you know, I'm I'm curious about going through a liquidity event that large, and I know that you know you, you chair, uh, I think one of the offices for Tiger Twenty One, and I've spoken to 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 Tim from Tiger Twenty One, and I understand that that's not that's not um, an advisory for like a private equity firm, but it it offers guidance as to what to do holistically. Uh, very very similar to what you're saying all the multifamily office services provide it it's a right. holistic view of what to do after a major liquidity event right and i think that i mean you you see this firsthand people going from operator to capital allocator at at like on mass like with huge amounts of capital have no idea really really what they're doing and also maybe just, you know, speak through some of the things that they have to think about outside of just capital allocation that are the realities for them. I mean, like uh, you've just mentioned these numbers, these very devastating numbers about how quickly um, generational wealth is lost. So why does that happen? Um, in
1: my opinion, um, a lot of it has to do with ego. Um, it has to do with the ego of the founder, of the person who had the liquidity event, and um, you have a liquidity event. You can do anything you want with your money. And I make no judgments. You do whatever you want. Um, but I think a lot of times people think that because they are good at one thing, that means they're going to be good at everything. And it's a different skill set to sell Beanie Babies than to take a billion and grow it to two. So I think the problem with many people is because they've had such success with, the, with so much money at such a young age. And remember, this is not generational. Back when the Rockefeller started, it, it took 10, 20, 30 years to create generational wealth. You can create an app today in a year and create huge amounts of generational wealth. So it's happening so quickly. And that's why the speed is happening so quickly. So family offices right now, um, you could talk to 10 experts. And what's a family office? How much money do you need for a family office? Why do you create a family office? You're going to get totally different answers. Um, I gave a keynote at Stanford five years ago. I had $5 billion families. And I asked each one of them, what is a family office and why did you create it? And there were five completely different answers. And nobody was right and nobody was wrong. It's just that's where we are in the industry. So I think that the fascinating thing for me is that in 1986, when I was a senior in college, my dad, who was a brilliant banker, wanted me to meet this guy who was also a banker. And he said, there's an industry called private equity, and I'd like you to, you should look at it because I think it's going to be big. Well, when you're 20 years old, you're smarter than your dad. And so I said, dad, I already got a job at Drexel Burnham. I'm not going to listen to who you want me to talk to. And I went to Drexel. Well, fast forward two years, Drexel goes bankrupt. And the person he wanted to introduce me to was John Canning, who started Madison Dearborn, which became one of the largest private equity firms. And the, the industry was called private equity. So the... To me, when I look at that point, and obviously in retrospect, I would have done things differently, but I do think that we're at that inflection point right now where just like private equity and venture capital firms disrupted the public markets, I do see family offices starting to do it. So I do think we're at a tipping point right now, and I think family offices can make a huge amount of difference, not just in creating alpha, but equally, if not more important – in a lot of the philanthropic endeavors they
0: can engage in. And, and and obviously to engage in philanthropic endeavors, they have to be successful and maintain that success. But I'm curious about, uh, this seems like there's this, this problem with the family office industry, for lack of a better term, it's that they're so fragmented, you mentioned this before. So how do you actively fix that? Because (laughs) there's no, there's no group or organization that supports, you know, the, the collective body of family offices. So what drives them in the right direction?
1: Well, and the other issue is, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of family office, con- first of all, every bank, every law firm, every accounting firm, they're trying to get into the family office world it's where all the money is. That's, it makes sense. And you've got all these family office conferences. The problem with a lot of the conferences where these family officers are supposed to learn to invest is many of them have become a pay to play game. So if you're speaking, it's not that you're necessarily an expert in real estate. It's that you spent $25,000 to be able to speak and you're really just selling your fund. It's an inherent conflict of interest in my opinion. So I, I think that you, you have to look at from the standpoint uh, of what is in the best interest of, of family offices and where are you getting your deal flow from and what, is, what are people's agendas. So everybody has an agenda and that's fine, but I just think that family offices in general, the first, second, and third thing they wanna know before they're gonna work with anybody is can I trust this person? And then the fourth thing is, what's your one, three, five year track record? What's your biggest drawdown? That's flipped when you look at it from an institution. So trust is the main component of why family offices will work with somebody.
0: I just want to take a second to thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. It's time to get out of your spreadsheets. With HubSpot CRM, you get real-time data at your fingertips so your teams stay in sync across the customer journey. You track your contacts and customers, send personalized emails in bulk, and get the context you need to create amazing experiences for your teams and customers at scale, all from one powerful platform. It's why more than 150,000 companies already use HubSpot CRM to run their business better. Plus, HubSpot's user-friendly interface sets you up for success from day one so you can spend less time managing software and more time on what matters, your customers. There's no better time to get organized. Learn how HubSpot can help your business grow better and get a special offer of 20% off on eligible plans at HubSpot.com slash success pod. And so when you, when you work with you, you deal with this industry quite a bit, what are the biggest misconceptions about family offices that you've seen? There are so
1: many misconceptions, Uh, how much money you need to have a family office. What's the point of a family office? I mean, a lot of these people, and again, I make no judgment, you if you make the money, you could do whatever you want with it. But many people would be better off just finding a philanthropy that they like and, and outsourcing a lot of what they're doing. Um, it's a full-time job. If you're gonna do it right, it's a business. And many of the family offices don't look at it, don't take it as seriously as they did their business. If they did, then they would realize it's a full-time job. And if they did that, I think it would become more efficient. I think that's starting to happen But the beauty to me of where we are in the world from an economic standpoint is this is changing real time right now. So the family offices, they're not there today. Um, The smart people want to find the rich people and the rich people want to find the smart people. But the smart people don't know how to find the rich people and the rich people hide behind a veil and want to be secret. So how are they going to find the smart people? This is starting to change. And I think it's going to happen Um, over the next three to five years, it's not going to like click and all of a sudden it's going to happen. But I think it's going to gradually change and people will start realizing the value of working with the family office. A lot of people who are in real estate, a lot of people who are in private, you know, who have deals, uh, independent sponsors, they would prefer to work with the family office rather than a private equity or venture capital firm. The problem is how do you find them? So one of the things that I'm trying to help with in the industry, and it's a it, it's a massive task, is how do you connect the rich people and the smart people? Because once they're connected and they know what everybody wants, and everybody says this is kind of what I'm looking for, it will be a much smoother market, and it'll be a much
0: more efficient market. Um, I was okay. So we've we've spoken through significant, significant amount of info on family offices. I'm curious if you want to take this in a couple of different directions, um, because there's other things that you that you do for these families. I mean, you literally invest in them. So I'm curious if you want to go into how you source and look at deals and what your thesis is for what is good and what is bad and what you put in front of families, we can do that. Or I was you know, we can also go into wealth transfer. I think that's super interesting because you you hear all the time about why are the rich not paying enough tax and what's going on with that well i mean there's strategies as well to help you avoid tax that maybe the average person doesn't know that much about so whatever you feel like you want to go into which is the most relevant but they're both really interesting topics so
1: no they are and also philanthropy which is which is huge and that's been a big component. I don't even know
0: what questions to ask about philanthropy outside of i i'm assuming it's a fo- it's a focus i mean i'm not at that level of wealth yet where i have to worry about philanthropy so well look the, so Kind of my
1: north star is so. My dad passed away from prostate cancer yeah. at fifty-seven. Um, my first boss was Michael Milken. Michael Milken developed prostate cancer. What Michael Milken did is rather than throw a hundred million dollars at the American Cancer Society, he built it like a venture capital fund, right? So he put two hundred fifty thousand into this crazy idea, five hundred here, two million here. But because of him, you and I and all the male listeners will die with. But not of prostate cancer. You look at what Bill Gates did for vaccines. I would argue he did more than the US government. My point being that if you you can't run a, a philanthropy or family or a charity exactly like a business, but you could run it more businesslike. So right. kind of my North Star is you take these really innovative entrepreneurs who've done extremely well, And you apply that more towards philanthropy. And I think that's going to solve some of the big world problems. So I just did a podcast with David Rubenstein the other day. He owns the Magna Carta. He owns, I mean, he he, he helped rebuild the Jefferson Memorial. He's done, or the Lincoln Memorial. He's done so much for philanthropy right now. And so I think there's a lot of good that can happen out of that. And I think you're starting to see that.
0: No, I was going to say, so it's interesting. So you think that some of the future of philanthropy, and it's not, this is not to generalize it, this has to be all of philanthropy, but it's, again, it's more doing direct investment into causes that you can actually see fixing something. Or
1: Yeah, I, I think that if you look at Milken or you look at Gates or you look at what Bloomberg's done, um, you you can take these business minds and, you again, and apply it more toward to solve some of these real world problems. I don't think it's going to come from the government. And I don't think it's going to come from the corporate sector. I think it's going to come from these entrepreneurs who can make a difference. So I think for me, philanthropy is the most important aspect of family office because at the end of the day, you can only, you know, the pharaohs tried to bury bury themselves with money and that didn't really turn out to be a great idea. Um, What else? You can't take it with you. So giving it away and doing it in a way that are important to you is something that's really, really relevant. So we do a lot of work with family offices, figuring out ways to, and prostate cancer is near and dear to my heart because mm-hmm. my father passed away from it.
0: No, I, I think that's a smart, um, a smart way to look at philanthropy because I think like the way that I default to looking at it is the way that um, I think most people do. is just how do we put money into an organization or a government or something that's already set up? And that's not the only way to Truly, do philanthropy oh,
1: and, and also what's the first if somebody has a philanthropy, the first question people ask is what's the overhead? It's not a good question. You don't go to Apple or, or Microsoft and say what's your overhead. It's irrelevant what your overhead is. It's mm-hmm. what's you know you could have a lemonade stand that the overhead one percent, but you're going to only create five dollars. So I just think you have to start asking the right questions and looking at it from a big picture standpoint.
0: Um, can we teach over some of uh, the wealth transfer strategies that some of these individuals yeah. use? Um, I think that'd be very valuable so um, if somebody doesn't you know doesn't have the advisory of a, a billion dollar family office, but I'm sure some of the strategies can still be leveraged so when you have money and you're trying to pass it on to your children your kids, uh, what are the strategies that you can look into and use?
1: Well, when I ran a head, my hedge fund, I remember, I think I was like 31 years old and I was um, in a, it was a billionaire's office and he had his estate planning attorney in the meeting and he had no idea what he was, the estate planning attorney had no idea what I was talking about from the, from the business, from the, from the finance standpoint. And when the meeting ended, I asked the, my prospective client who ultimately became a client, I'm like, why was he, why was he there? I, I did it respectfully. And he kind of put his hand on my arm, and he's like, "You'll you'll understand one day." He goes, "The goal is not to become a billionaire. The goal is to be worth zero, but control as much as you can." And all these trust and estate planning attorneys, they're just getting stuff outside of people's estates. And that was sort of like an aha moment for me when I realized it. So what these trust and estate planning attorneys do, and a lot of the wealthy people, the the family offices. Are closer with their trust and estate planning attorneys than they are their financial advisors because the goal, again, is not to be a billionaire, it's to be worth as little as possible but control as much as you can. That's trans- wealth transfer. It's a very tricky issue because you don't want to give the kids too much money, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a problem unto itself. Um, but you want to bulletproof yourself for litigation, you want to make sure that you have the ability to get things out of your estate. But you still can control it, and that's all these trust—that's all these trust and estate planners do.
0: And that—and that's really it. So if you—if you start a trust and you start to transfer your assets into that, then you can become like a, a managing director of that trust, and that does mitigate some tax responsibility, correct?
1: Yeah, a lot. Yeah. A, if you look at anybody, any family office, or anybody who's worth, you know, a, a lot of money, um, they've got an estate planning attorney in place, and they've got trust set up, and they've got stuff outside of their name. Um, they, it might be in their children's name. It might be, but they, they structure it where they're bulletproof from a litigation standpoint and they maximize the benefits they could, they could use within the law of what, what you can do to transfer Of course,
0: Yeah. No, I think that that's the one thing that's very frustrating is that, um, the average person, like they, they pay such a significant amount of tax in everything they do. And it's it's usually because they don't have access to strategies that can mitigate tax, and that's really it. Like very it, legal strategies.
1: It the, look the tax code's absurdly
0: unfair. I mean, it is what it is. Um,
1: yeah. If you look at the people who've made the most, I and mean, private equity, uh, hedge funds. I mean, you're you're, you're paying, you know, you're, you're carried interest. I mean, a lot of that is tax. Is you're you're, you're benefiting from the tax system, real estate um you know 1031 exchanges you're benefiting from that so a lot of the people who've made their money has to do whether it's real estate private equity um hedge funds it is utilizing this the tax code and being able to benefit from that
0: yeah no it's it's just smart to think that outside the box and just speak to people because these strategies are not mutually exclusive to wealthy individuals that's the thing like they can be used by anyone um Uh, And then I guess the other question, is there any other, any other, I guess, uh, before we pivot into like deals that you look at, um, is there any other like strategies or, or tips that you pick up from dealing with these ultra high net worth, wealthy individuals that would be just good that could be utilized by somebody who's obviously in a, in a lower income bracket?
1: Yeah. I mean, I pick up things every day um, from, from them. And I think um, the most important thing I think I do is I try to, i'm 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 good at it. I'm not great. I'm getting better. Listening is a skill set that people in general aren't really good at. Just listen to people and the people who've done quite well rather than talk so much, just listen to how they did it, what they did, what their strategy was um I think listening to people who've been successful for for anybody um what techniques they've used, what strategies you've used what their what their m o is I think the ability to listen is a skill set that most people are not really good at, and they're looking to think about the response to an answer before they actually fully listen to the full question.
0: Do you notice that that's something that is particularly uh, like a a particular skill set that people that are ultra successful, they have that in spades, like the ability to actively listen to to sort of take a second seat in the conversation to make sure they get 100% of that information? Well, A, you're very good at that.
1: Um, B, um, my dad told me that he was a banker and he said, you could always tell the lawyers and the entrepreneurs because you go to a meeting with 10, 12 people and the lawyers would come in and in general, they would try to show the people that they're the smartest guys in the room, however that is. The entrepreneur, their agenda, they want to find the smartest guy in the room. All I try to do, all I've done is just surround myself with people that are smarter than me in various areas that I trust implicitly and delegate. And if you do that, I think it's very hard not to succeed.
0: Agreed. That's very smart. Um, Okay. And then last thing that I want to go into just very briefly, um, you get access to some of these incredible deals, but then you put these deals in front of your network who trust you implicitly to basically make sure that these are good deals. So when you look at some of these deals, what are you looking for? Because that's a a huge, it's a lot of responsibility too.
1: Right. But again, they also vet the deals too, right? Of course. Um, So they've got another level of of diligence. And a lot of the deals we get might come from the family offices that we work with where they see a deal that's just too small for them, right? So Mm -hmm. a $20 million deal might be too small for them. They, they, They love the deal. They've vetted it. It's a terrific deal, risk reward, but it doesn't make sense. It's like, an individual investing $50 doesn't make sense to do the diligence. Um, so a lot of the deals we get are from the large family offices who see really attractive deals. It's just too small for them. It's not too small for me.
0: But still, I mean, so that that aside, there must be some things that you do look for in deals, like some strategies. We
1: we do. Uh, a lot of it is related. I would say um, most of the families that I work with, it this it's all a relationship business and mm with with the right relationships um i think that you'll you'll see um people will know who you are and and what you, what kind of deals you're looking for i think that makes a big difference and i think that people also um want to work with people that they like and they want to work with people that they trust and you know i there's there's a a person you know i i'm a big believer in just giving. Um, at the end of the day, I can't tell you how or why, but the more you give, the more you get. It just, it just happens. I can't tell you why rationally, but I know it's true. There was a guy in New York um, and I'm always introducing people to be other people. And I would say 10 to 15 times a day, I will start an email. I'd like to provide a mutually beneficial introduction. I don't have an agenda. There's I don't have, there's no benefit to me. I just think that this person should know this person because they could each benefit themselves. That's how you have to look at it. Well, when I was in New York, I was at a, at a family office conference and there was a guy who was trying to raise money for um, uh, early stage venture fund. And we're talking at a cocktail party. I'm like, oh, you should talk to this person. Just one thing led to another. And after he talked to the, 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 the guy from the venture capital, he's like, why did you introduce me to that person? I'm like, well, what do you mean? He's like, he, he doesn't invest in – I'm like, I'm not – my goal at this party is not just to find people for you to invest in, right? I just thought he was a nice person and you're a good person. It would be good to meet. Now, fast forward, I've never given that person a recommendation. So I think the, 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 prob, the, the issue is we live in a society right now where we want to get – and we want to get instantly. And I think as you get a little, and I was much more myopic when I was younger. I think what you realize is the more you give, the more you do get. And I think that's a really important lesson that I've learned a lot from a lot of the family offices I listen to just because I listen to them.
0: Um, I'm curious when you when you deal with people that are just starting out. uh do you see that one of the biggest detriments is their lack of patience? Because that's what it seems like that one particular individual, it's just like the lack of And actually, patience has been a theme through this whole conversation, to be honest. It's like, what disrupts inpatient capital? What's patient capital. What, what did you do well during your career while well, you were patient with the relationships you built and, and you gave and you gave and you gave and you expected nothing in return and then eventually... Well, again, have.
1: I was much I was much more myopic when I was younger, so I didn't look at the world through the same lens. As you get older, hopefully, you evolve and mature mm-hmm. and look at the world through a little bit of a different lens. Um, but I just think that you have to be able to look at things from a perspective of, you know, what's going to benefit somebody else, and then if you do that, again, ultimately, it's not a it's the antithesis of a quid pro quo. It's mm-hmm. basically figuring out. If I knew somebody who would be great on your podcast, I would go out of my way to introduce you because I think you do a great podcast, and I think they'd be a good guest, period. I don't, there's, I don't even need to be involved in any capacity, but it's a mutually beneficial introduction, and I think that more and more people need to do that. I think this generation right now, um, well, the, there's a lot of problems. Um, first of <laughs> all, the, the, the phone is going to be the smoking of this generation, number one two um i think the work ethic in general is not near where it is for my generation um and three they want to do things quick and anything good it it just takes a while it Mm -hmm. takes time it takes patience and when you're 22 years old it's easy to say it's hard to do and you know so if i had to do i when i i was talking to david rubenstein last on a podcast i did with him two weeks ago and like if you had a do over what would you do differently and he became a. He went to law. He became a lawyer first. He's like, I wouldn't have done that. I would. I did this. I wouldn't have done that. Um, we all have do overs. We we would all do things differently. I think. But I think one of the major things that that I get out when I listen to people is I hate going to conferences and listening to people talk about how great their track record is or how subtly telling you how wonderful they are. Um, I've made a ton of mistakes in my life and a lot of entrepreneurs and people have made a lot of mistakes. I'd rather talk about the mistakes that I made than the fact that I might've done well in a specific strategy or, you know, grow my business to a certain level. The biggest compliment I ever received at a conference. And I speak at a lot of these conferences all over the world is that was really authentic. And I didn't take that as a compliment. I just, Mm -hmm. you know, took the thanks (laughs) But saying that you were authentic, um, I think that's really important. And I think that a lot of these people look up to people like a David Rubenstein, like authenticity is really, really important. And again, everybody started somewhere and everybody could help somebody in some way and you have to pay it forward. And I just think if that's a mindset you have, people see through it and you, Authenticity is really important, also, because you 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 have to um, be genuine in what you're doing, and people see see through that too. So I just think that um, again, the family offices that I've worked with, in general, a lot of these people, some of the common threads they have, they're very authentic people, good or bad. It just they're 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 you yeah, know they're what real they believe. And um,
0: they also have a lot of gratitude, which is a huge component of my life. Um, those are those are good questions, and I, I you know, I, I hesitate to ask them because not everybody's comfortable going into those. But you know, since since you did bring them up, I guess I would even ask you, like, what would you do? What would you have done differently in your life? What was the one thing that you regret, if any?
1: A lot. I would have done a lot differently. <laughs> I, I would have. Um, there's a thing. Um, my daughter was eight years old at the time and we have a thing in our house where if you call three times it's an emergency so i was meeting with the large family office i got three calls i'm like i gotta take this she i said i thought she was in the hospital i didn't know what, what had happened i said what happened she said daddy what are the five most important things in life I'm like what's wrong she's like no no i need to know this for a project so i'm like okay well this isn't an emergency and we'll talk about that when i get home so fast forward six hours, I went home, and I am and I said, first of all, only call three times if it's an emergency. Second of all, tell me what you're doing, and I'll help you with it. And she, for her project, they had to do the five most important things for them. So for her, I worked with her on it. It was being popular. She was eight years old. She wanted to be a really good athlete. She wanted to be a really good listener, and there were a couple other things. And then she says, as ch- children do, what are your five? I'm like, eh, whatever. Don't worry about it. Um, but then it did resonate with me and I, and I I thought about it. And then over the next couple months, I did think about it more. And for me in in order, it's love, gratitude, attitude, balance, and laughter. Those five, which isn't right or wrong. That's just kind of how I, what are the most important things to me? And I got, I only did that exercise because my daughter asked me to do it, but those are the most important things to me. So I think that, um, I would have done, I would have I try to look at every, every person you meet, try to look at how's that meeting going to be impacted 10 years from now, not 10 weeks from now or 10 Mm -hmm. days from now. Um, I think you've got to take a look. I think you need to be um, true to yourself. Uh, I think you have to slow down um, uh, from the the, the, the fast pace. I think surrounding yourself around really good people is, I've done a good job of that, but it's more important to me now. I will not, I try not to hang around people who are negative. I try to hang around people who are positive, um, who are caring and thoughtful. So the types of people I hang around, um, I wasn't as focused on that when I was younger. Um, you know, there's a lot that I that I would do differently. But again, like Dave Rubin said, you know, I ended up in a fine place, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't do anything differently per se, because I wouldn't have learned those lessons, right? So if I, if I, it was like Benjamin Button, like if I, if I had yeah. do over, um, if I said, okay, I'm not going to do A, B, and C, I, it wouldn't be as relevant to me today to realize the mistakes that i made. So sometimes mistakes in, 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 errors that you make are your biggest lessons that you could learn.
0: Very smart. And I would ask also um, one last little bit of wisdom from you for people that have had a liquidity event and are sitting at home and listening and they're they're trying to figure out what's the next action they should take. So for somebody that does come into a significant amount of money, um, where do they go? What do they do? What are the first things they should have top of mind so that they don't screw it up, basically?
1: Two things. One, the very first thing to do for everybody is talk to an estate planning attorney. What most people do is they see a great private equity deal, a cannabis deal, a real estate deal. Don't invest. Talk to a pri- talk to an estate planning attorney. And two, don't do anything for six months or a year. And yeah, you might miss out on a huge opportunity and I've never bought a stock at the bottom, I've never sold a stock at the top and you're gonna miss out. For six months to 12 months, just don't. Don't make major investments. Let things settle. And then over time, then start doing it. So talk to an estate planning attorney and do nothing for a year. That's my sure. advice.
0: Very good advice. Okay. Um, before we wrap up, um, any other things that we wanted to go into that you wanted to bring up um, that we didn't go into? Any questions that I should have asked you that I didn't remember to ask no, you I think or know were... to ask you?
1: <laughs> no, I think you. I think you were you were very thorough. You're you know you're very good at what you do. Um, I just think that you know when people want to talk to me a lot of times it's because I'm this family office expert, but it, it's just. And people will often ask like how do you get to work with family office it doesn't happen overnight and it's not like i get calls all the time like can you introduce me to this family and it's just because they want to raise money for a fund you have to take a much longer term perspective and i i I think that for people who are looking to get into the family office space more um figure out a way you could benefit the family office so when when i'm working even if it's a multi-billion dollar family um the first thing I'll do is I'll introduce them because even though they're connected, they don't know everybody. They don't even know most people. Mm-hmm. I'll introduce them to other family offices so they could kind of share best practice. I'm not even involved in the conversation. But by introducing them to other families, um, that's a value add. Figure out ways that you could add value to anybody and everybody in whose life you're in. And I think in general, good things happen
0: very good okay um last question that i ask everyone um well first of all i'll i'll ask you where should people go to connect with you social media website all of that um i don't
1: i i don't the only social media i use is, is linkedin so linkedin okay. i'm fairly accessible on, on linkedin i don't use facebook or anything like that um i do have a i'm launch i just launched a family office podcast a familyofficeworldpodcast.com um i just did one with david rubinstein recently and, and i actually love doing that because i get to Again, surround myself with people that are smarter and more successful than me. So I, I, I enjoy doing that.
0: Great. Okay, perfect. Um, I'll link those. So we'll get those links in, in the show notes. And then last question I ask everybody. Um, after your career, after all you've accomplished, what does success mean to you?
1: It's a great question. Um, I think being true to yourself, being authentic, um, I asked David Rubenstein the same question and I'm like, is it more important to be happy or significant? Um, I I, I think that to me, it's it's being true to yourself. It's being authentic. It is um, giving back in whatever way you you can. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if enlightenment is ultimately what people want to do, I'm not there yet, uh, but you know, you wanna. There's a lot more to life than just making money and creating alpha. I know a lot of miserable billionaires. Um, if there were a direct correlation between wealth and success or happiness, I would just tell people to make as much money as you can. It's not the case, and it's the people who are thoughtful and think about how they want to live their life. So, to me, it's it's a balanced life. It's a life filled with love, and it's a life surrounded by family and close friends that you can trust, um, implicitly.
0: I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed.